Well, we're going to dive straight in this morning, I'm continuing with our Pete series. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, maybe a vintage copy with paper in it, uh, or maybe you just want to pull out your iPhone or other Android-type device, open up that Bible app. We are in 1 Peter, chapter 3, and we're going to be uh, looking at verses 8 through to 22. I, I love this um, resounding message that the Lord's um, bringing of the... Uh, the movement, the extension, the growth, the uh, advancement of his kingdom uh, in the here and now. And, and um, you know, one of the things that I know we're waking up to as the church is that the primary vehicle for the extension of this kingdom, it rests and resides in, in our hands. It's right here in and on my life. Um, we, we talk often here at Vine Life about the fact that the mission and message and mandate of the kingdom, of the gospel, it resides on people. It doesn't reside on, on necessarily ministries or programs or projects. It rests on you. And we've been hearing this, I think, this morning, this, this reality that as we sing the very songs about, um, about God's kingdom coming, we're actually declaring over ourselves the very answer uh, to what God wants to see in and through our lives and in this city. And that is that you would show up unequivocally and with confidence and, and with power and, and with clarity, you, you would show up in a way that lives around you would be transformed because you carry the kingdom of heaven. And I feel like these words are speaking right into what we're going to look at this morning. So let's dive straight in there. We're in 1 Peter 3, and uh, I'm just going to read it to you, <clears throat> and then we'll go from there. This is what Peter says. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he jumps on and he he quotes from Psalm 34. And he says, whoever desires to love life and sees good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now we're going to jump into some odd uh, verses here. Verse 18 onwards. I promise you we will look at this briefly. It's pretty confusing. Here we go. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring God to us. And that was pretty, okay, we're fine with that. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here we go, a little harder. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. 
And God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark uh, was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been made subject to him. Um, this is uh, such a rich passage. I do want to focus in and around those first um, first. Uh, 17, 18 verses, and I will touch on those latter verses, but um, um, how many of you have been enjoying this Peter series? I'm loving it, loving it. Sarah just did a, just a phenomenal job last week, but I want to pull out from these verses six things, and if you're writing notes, which I know many of you do, tumbleweed rolling through, um, these are the six things that I want to touch on. We're going to move that pace through them. The first thing is this, the way I live my life demonstrates who God is. The way I live my life demonstrates who God is. Second thing I want to pull out from these uh, verses is the fact that withdrawing, retreating, withdrawing is not a strategy. Thirdly, God is committed, if not more so, to his mission than my happiness. Challenge is my opportunity to release hope, Fifthly, endurance through challenge produces gentleness and respect. And finally, I want to help us understand and remember that you're in good company. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that um, in and on our lives you speak, Jesus, and you tell us that we are a light unto the world. That in fact that no one would, would light a lamp and put a bowl under it. There is a significant light and declaration on and in and through our lives to the world around us. So, Father, I pray that you would speak through your word um, today. Holy Spirit, you challenge us through your word. And, Father, we walk out of these doors differently with a different perspective on, Father, how we show up in this city, how we show up in our families, how we show up in our workplaces, that, God, there would be a, a shift for us into being the kingdom extending men and women, sons and daughters that you always created us to be. So at that point, we say, Holy Spirit, help us. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen. I, uh, <clears throat> I recently had a conversation with Luke. Luke's my 12-year-old boy. And uh, basically, that conversation uh, went like this. I said to him, uh, Luke, TV these days is absolutely rubbish. It's rubbish. Especially Saturday evening TV. Absolutely rubbish. It's garbage. How many of you would agree with me? Absolute garbage, Saturday TV. They just don't make television like they used to. <laughs> oh gosh, it came out of my mouth. It's like when my grand used to say, we used to be eating some food, and she'd say, oh, they don't make meat like they used to. I was like, what do you mean? It's a lamb. It's the same lamb that was killed 20 years ago. It's the same Anyway, they don't make it like they used to. All my 12-year-old self needed when I was younger was to hear certain things on a Saturday evening come wafting through the airwaves and hit my ears to make my Saturday night the greatest night of my life. How many of you would remember those days? So what about this theme tune, if this was to waft its way? Yes? Amazing. This was... Soundtrack to my childhood. Very good. It was Michael Knightley who was 
Night Rider, very good. Kit was the car. All right, we can fade it down. Kit was the car. And it was that uh, iconic red scrolling light. A car that could talk. Beautiful. Amazing. How about this one? Anybody? A little bit more niche. Airwolf. Exactly. It was Knight Rider, but in the air with helicopters. Incredible. But this is all I needed. Amazing. Could it get any better? Could it get any better? My Saturday night, could it get any better? Well, it did. It did get better. There was one TV show that defined my childhood. Still remains the greatest TV show ever made. That's a fact. Uh, in the history of all television, there's never been a television program ever made that, that even touches this, this program. And all I needed every Saturday night was a few seconds of what we're about to hear that would, that would basically make my 12-year-old life complete. See, the fact is, if you have a problem, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the Right, flooding back. There it is. The under 25s are just looking at me like just bewildered. They're just like, would we get back to scripture? This is ridiculous. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's because you're growing up in an environment in an era where television is terrible. And I, uh, I'm sorry for you. Uh, we just did, we just had it better. We had it better. The thing I absolutely loved, and I will tie this in, you ready for this? The thing I absolutely loved uh, about the A-team wasn't just B.A.'s bullish attitude and the fact that every now and again they used to have to drug him or knock him out to get him on a plane. That was amazing. It wasn't the fact that Hannibal made the name Smith cool, <laughs> which obviously for me was a win. Um, it wasn't the fact that during the A-team, there would be on average over 500 rounds of ammunition fired and not one person would ever get shot. I mean, it's amazing. All that was great. But the thing that I loved about the A-team was nearly every episode you would watch, you would find the A-team would be backed into a corner, nowhere to go, surrounded by their enemy. They would usually be held up in a garage or an air hangar or a warehouse. Uh, They usually would have run out of ammo and seemingly they were doomed until they would have a little scout around. And um, and what they would find would usually, they would find a, a roll of tape helpful. They would usually find a, a, a pipe of some sort. They'd find some paper clips. And there was always, there was always a welder. Wherever they got held up, there was always the, what they needed to weld stuff together, right? Every warehouse, everywhere they went, everywhere they were locked up, always a welder. Very fortunate. And at this point, the plan would begin to unfold. You know, you would see uh, you would see them busily, sort of sparks would fly, you'd see them trying uh, to put things together, and then the next shot would be the outside of the air hangar, it would be the outside of the warehouse, and it would go silent. And then all of a sudden, this black uh, van with a, <coughs> with a red stripe down of it would come careering out of the front door, 
And now it wasn't just a red van because this van had cannons attached to every part of the van and it would be firing these paper clips or whatever they'd managed to find. And, and somehow they'd managed with that welder to carve out a massive hole in the top of the, top of the van and there'd be an 18 person stood out the top and, and this pipe then had become, had become a flamethrower and oh, it was amazing. When everything had looked so grim, the team would defeat their enemies and despite all the odds being stacked against them, that was what we loved about the A-team, right? This was my childhood. It was brilliant. I love it when a plan comes together. You're welcome. It was brilliant. But this letter that we've been reading right here in Peter, it's speaking into a very similar situation. Tenuous, I know, but that's all right. Go with me. You know, this is exactly where we find ourselves as we read these verses here in Peter. You know, Peter, as we, as we know, as we've looked, was writing to a group of disparate, disconnected Christians who were in a very desperately difficult situation. Enemies all around them. Challenges confronting them on a daily basis. And Peter's here giving some beautiful tuition to a, uh, that group of Christians on not just how to survive, but really how to thrive. You know, really, how, would, how are these early Christians going to take what Peter wrote in this letter and not just survive, but thrive in their challenging environment? And the Christians first reading this letter from Peter would have had, would have had one thing in their mind, really, and that was, how are we going to survive? They would have looked at their situations, they would, uh, then they would have been saying, everything is stacked against us, we're completely hemmed in. And honestly, at that point, you would think that Peter, uh, in his wisdom, would be writing a letter of tactic of how this group of Christians would, would be best served hiding. They would be best served, uh, trying to find ways to hide, to blend in, to lie low. But that's not what we hear when we're reading Peter. And in fact, the verses we've just read are not uh, a tactic of, of hiddenness. They're really a tactic of how, the, how these early Christians were to show up and be visible in the context of very challenging environments. And it's the same plan now. You know, for the early Christians, it was, how do we fully show up? How do we respond to the challenge? Especially when people begin to discover that we're following Jesus fully. We're fully in this. We're consecrated to Jesus. How am I going to live life when I do that and all I encounter is challenge and suffering and difficulty? But this is the big picture that these verses we've just read here in Peter speak to us about. They tell us that no matter, in, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter how hostile our family or our workplaces are, no, ma- no matter how hard it is to live out loud for Jesus, and no matter how challenging it is to live life out loud as a Christian, God isn't looking for the perfect situation for us to be in. He's looking for us to simply be around and show up. He's looking for our availability. He's looking as to us, for us to be available in every situation, every circumstance, every trial, every piece of suffering. He's looking for one thing. Where do I show up in that and how am I available? 
in spite of what's going, around, going on around me? How, how do I live boldly for him? And the cool thing is, is that he takes the, he takes the gaffer tape of our lives, he takes the, the pipe of our lives, the paper clip of our lives, and he does something remarkable with it. We can look at ourselves and say, I've got very little in the way of resource. And in fact, when I get out into the world, into my workplace, into my family, wherever it is that I show up, the resource of my life doesn't really look that significant. But God says, that's all I need. That's all I ever wanted was you and your availability. God says, I'll take what you have and I'll turn it into something that you need. And importantly, I'll turn it and take it into something that the world needs, if you'll let me. I want to show you a picture of how Peter does that through these six things. How he takes this message of hope, this message of God's goodness, this message of God's resourcefulness, and he's able to, he's able to take the, the, the resource of our lives, and he's, he's able to put it out into the world, into trial, into difficulty, and he's able to allow himself to be glorified through my life. It's a beautiful thing. So the first key that I want us to pull out of this passage here in 1 Peter 3 is the way I live my life demonstrates who God is. See it right here in the very first verses. He says, finally, all of you have, um, have unity of mind, sympathy, um, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That finally is a really important word for us to, to latch onto because it's a way that Peter is tying in the previous section of his letter. He's kind of, he's, he's, He's coming to an end, but there's been a journey that he's taken us on. And we've been on that journey, but I want to highlight it again briefly. That journey really starts in 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. So let me read that to you. It says, Beloved, which I love because it reminds us who we are. All of this stuff that we're about to figure out, it starts from the place of our identity. We are beloved sons and daughters. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, which just means temporary residents, And this is the early Christian group that he's writing to in exiles. To abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They may see how you live your life and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is what Peter's saying. You don't have to have political power. In fact, these guys didn't. They, they barely had places to live. You don't have to have influence. Your cultural status doesn't have to be strong and, and seemingly have influence. But what you, what you do have that gives you influence is the way that you live your life. And he says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles. And so he's assuming in this, in this verse, he's assuming that um, there is close proximity between these early Christians and the Gentiles. You know, it, it's assuming that there, was, there wasn't a disconnect. He's assuming that people who follow Jesus are living in close contact, contact to the community they live in. But he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, which means good and pure. So when they speak against you as evildoers, and that isn't, that isn't a when, not an if. Um, they may see your good deeds. Your life would demonstrate who God is. And as a result of that, they would have an encounter with God and that they would glorify God as a result of seeing something on your life. And here's Peter's goal. 
He wants followers of Jesus to live in such a way that people are pointed to God. And it's the same for us. As we read this here in Manchester, that, that there's, there's something in and on your life that points to God. But it sets the scene for our passage today, that the way I live my life demonstrates who God is. And from there onwards, um, from that um, passage, that, that those verses in, um, in Peter 2, they springboard into the ways in which our lives can be lived. And um, he starts here in the, these verses we've just read, and he says, the way I live my life it, um, demonstrates to God by being a great citizen, by being, by being a great citizen alongside those I live with. And he goes on to say at the end of chapter 2, he talks about how the fact that the way I live my life demonstrates who God is in the way, um, uh, in, in, the way in which I work in my job with my employees, that I'm a good employee. That demonstrates who God is. And at the beginning of chapter 3, and the way I live my life demonstrates who God is. So we have healthy, whole, flourishing marriages. And that actually within our, the context of our marriages, it demonstrates something of, of the goodness of who God is. It demonstrates who God is. And we see in these verses we've just read at the, the very beginning of today, that, um, that the way that followers of Jesus are called to live is going to point to who God is. And so Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling, but on the contrary. So live differently to that way. Bless. This is the way of our life. It's a way of blessing. For this was your calling that you may obtain a blessing. Now, right here, we've got some super practical things that we can give ourselves to. We could go and practice this all this week. But ultimately, these are, are, these are great ways for us to respond in life to the situations around us that often are counter the very things that we encounter. But in doing so, in choosing to bless, in choosing to not respond with evil when we, when we encounter evil ourselves, in, in choosing the way of love, we demonstrate who God is. We demonstrate who God is. It's a powerful thing to respond in the opposite spirit. How many of you ever tried that just for fun? You should maybe try it this week. Everything that you encounter this week by way of a negative response from your colleagues, by way of an irritated, backhanded comment from your children, try in that moment to respond in the opposite spirit. i tell you what it does is it diffuses what comes towards you because no one's expecting that a response to being cursed or to being challenged or, or, or someone being aggressive to you, no one's expecting that you would bless them in return. And yet this is what Peter's telling us to do. It's a powerful thing in the face of challenge, in the face of challenging people to respond with blessing. It's a powerful thing. And in doing so, it demonstrates the love and the grace and the heart of God to those around us. Because this is how God responds to us. In the light of our, our sin towards God, He chooses to be gracious towards us. He chooses to love us. But this strategy that Peter's given us, very simply, it is to choose the way of love. Love when it's easy, love when it's hard, but love. 
But in order to do that, in order to employ this strategy of, of pointing our lives towards loving those around us, even through difficulty, we have to hit on this second key, and that is this, that withdrawing is not a strategy. I've said it already, but Peter is really explicit in this strategy for these believers, and therefore for us, to thrive We can't shrink away. We have to show up. You know, as followers of Jesus, we show up and we engage. Even if the environments that we find ourselves in are challenging or hard, people are challenging and people are hard, Peter's helping us to learn the difference really between reacting and responding. They're two very, very different things. Peter's challenging us in these verses to say, don't be people that react. And reacting really is that, it's that mirage image response. It's the, I'm getting flack, so I'm going to give flack. I'm getting an irritation, I'm going to be an irritant. That's reaction, it's that mirrored approach and that mirrored way of dealing with whatever's in front of us. But Peter's saying, I want you to be people who respond. Respond out of a very different place. Respond out of a very different heart. And that heart would be a reflection of the heart of God. So Peter's helping us. He's giving a strategy to move away from the reaction, the normal, natural, fleshly reactions that we might naturally normally do in difficulty or in challenge. He's saying, I want you to be a whole bunch more measured in your response. And your responses can point people to who God is. Because they're measured based on the character and nature of God as opposed to my own fleshly reaction. But ultimately, in all of that, withdrawing is not a strategy. Hiding is not a strategy. Avoiding difficult, challenging situations is not the way that we get to demonstrate the love of God to the people around us. You know, simply burying our head in the sand is not a strategy. As I prayed earlier, Jesus was so clear. He said, go and be a light unto the world. Who in their right mind would light up a lamp and put a bowl over it? It doesn't make any sense. Withdrawing, hiddenness, it's not a strategy. Hundreds of years earlier from this, these verses that we read, when God's people were, were carted off to, to Babylon and they were put into exile, and there were many of, of, of Israel that wanted to live on the outskirts of the city um, because they hoped that ultimately that they would very soon return to their own land. And actually one of the points of, of, of them being thrust into exile was that, was that um, the purpose of it was that they would be forced into living a, a godless life and living in a godless culture. But God's prophet, Jeremiah, gives this amazing prophetic um, word right into Israel, and he gives them amazing advice, and it's in Jeremiah 29, verses 5 to 7. This is his strategy, and this is what's echoed in, in really the heart and the, the context of what Peter's writing. But he says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it's in its welfare you will find your welfare. 
There's like this crazy context where a very, very bad situation of Israel being sent out into exile, God is, God's advice to Israel is not to grin and bear it and hide away until such a time as they can be restored to their own land. He says, no, 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 show up, live life. Don't, with, don't retreat, don't go to the edge of the city, come into the very heart and life of the city and live it out because actually there's a correlation between your welfare in the middle of this situation and the welfare that you will create as you actively pursue living life in the context of a difficult, exiled situation. It's a really key principle that, that so many of our, our church communities need to grapple with because this gathering in somewhat of a sanctuary, is not your sanctuary. It's not your place to hide away and to come and meet just with like-minded people. It's the place where you are equipped and trained and sent back out into the city because the welfare of the city depends on who? It's you. Where our city goes, it depends on you. So withdrawing is not a strategy. Thirdly, God is as committed, if not more, to his mission than my happiness. You know, when Paul in these, uh, Peter, sorry, in these verses, he just acknowledges um, the reality of challenge and suffering. It's a reality. Verse 9, do not repay evil with evil. You're going to find some evil coming towards you. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you? Expect some element of harm. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer, there's suffering there. Verse 16, when you are slandered. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer. There is this cold, hard reality for these new believers that the environment they're in is a challenging, hard environment in which they encounter suffering. But what we begin to understand from these verses is is that these situations, these challenges, this suffering, they really are just the backdrop to the opportunity for God to become known. For God and who he is to be demonstrated in and through your life. Now, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking, well, I wish I'd known that as I was going through all this trial and suffering. You're right. It's far easier to say than it is to experience or live out. But But the mission and message that God is truly committed to and the letter of that message to the world, it's written on your lives. And uniquely, that message is amplified as it's written on the lives of people who encounter challenge and trial and suffering. It's amplified to the world around you because of how you navigate through suffering and challenge and trial, not simply because God removes it from your existence and you never find yourself struggling or challenging. You know, so when we read the reality of challenge, suffering, and trial in the context of these verses, they are all submitted to the fact that we, we live life, and the way I live my life through those things, especially in the midst of challenge, it truly demonstrates who God is. That was our point number one. How I live my life through these things demonstrates who God is. Remembering what we read in chapter 2, that, that they may see your good deeds. They may see how you navigate through this challenge and trial and suffering. They would see something different about you. And it would, it would be part of the beautiful story of glorifying God. I think that sometimes that we, we've mistaken God's mission as my happiness. 
Um, now, if that's the case, um, and that is his primary role, that, that my life should be protected from challenge and suffering, then we hit a problem. And the problem is that if we do encounter suffering or we encounter challenge, and we have that particular mindset, then we hit the problem that God has somehow dropped the ball on my happiness, or at some level, he has, he has disconnected himself from me, he, he, has, he has disappropriated himself from my life in such a, such a way that now I'm encountering trial and suffering. But let me tell you this. The truth of the matter is, is that God never, ever drops the ball in his, in his presence and being present in our lives. Either in the moments when he does protect us and, and hold suffering and challenge from our lives, or when he's present to give us grace to endure those things. Either way, he's faithful. Whether we, whether we have a grid for the fact that God, yes, may withhold challenge from us, but he also, he, he can gift us with grace to endure challenge. Either which way, he's faithful and he's powerful. And the mission and the message is evident even more so in and through my life. Because he was present when he held those challenge and challenge and trial away from my life. But he was also present in and amidst the giving me the grace to endure that challenge. And the beautiful thing is because of all that, the very next point, challenge is my opportunity to release hope. We read it in verses 13 through to 15. It says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared to give a defense. The Greek word there is apologia, which, which is where we get our word apologetics from. It's a reasoned response for the hope that we have. Um, we, we, love this, we love this passage when we think about it in the context of evangelism. It's a, we pull it out all the time when we're talking about evangelism. But actually, the context uh, here is, is people who are suffering. People who are suffering unjustly and, and how they have a dogged determination to not just hold on to the hope that they have, but let that hope be manifest, displayed, talked about in the very environments where that challenge is coming from. And what Peter's saying is that in the midst of our, our ability to hold on to hope, more than that, to demonstrate that hope in times of great challenge or great great trouble, is that actually a world looks on and goes, there's something radically different about you. How on earth? Now, this is a different thing, but I, I don't know if you, many of you saw the, um, uh, the MP sister gave, gave, uh, gave a speech, yes, gave a reflection on her, her sister's life yesterday. And just, just, it baffled me how, how in the midst of, of, of that family's life being decimated, that there was, there was language of hope. Now, they're not believers, but there was language of hope. And I just sat back and go, there's something different 
about the, the, the ability for this lady to talk about, uh, talk about terms of their future when having, having had such a devastating moment happen just in the near, in their near history. I was like, that's, that's unbelievable. But Peter's saying that actually when we in and amongst trial and suffering and challenge, when we in and amongst the, that, that phase of life or those moments in life, we can hold on to hope, but more than hold on to hope, we can demonstrate that hope to those around us. A world looks on and goes, that just doesn't make sense. There's something different about you. What is it that means that you can have hope? So suffering and challenge and trial, it doesn't just stir up our hope, it strengthens our voice. Even to the very people that might create challenge and might create difficulty for ourselves. But as we navigate through this journey, and we hold fast to hope and we demonstrate hope, endurance through that challenge produces the beautiful aspect of gentleness and respect. You know, as we, as we are prepared uh, to give a response, as we're repair, prepared uh, to respond in and amongst challenging, difficult situations, we have to do that from a place of gentleness and respect. Again, our hearts are postured towards people and it has to, be, it has to come out of the very opposite spirit to which we encounter you know, we get to demonstrate love. We get to uh, demonstrate grace. We get to demonstrate mercy to the very people that don't deserve that love, don't deserve that mercy, don't deserve that grace. But it's, it's not because we, we grit and determine it, but it's because we nurture in us the very characteristics of God. And we live our lives out of that place of knowing that in the face of trial, in the face of suffering, I get to demonstrate and live out the goodness and the character and the nature of God in how I love those around me. And it demonstrates itself through gentleness and respect. You know, when the gospel takes root in our hearts, when our hearts are anchored to Christ the Lord as holy, when we're anchored to what Jesus has done for each one of us, it makes us people who genuinely care about the people around us. And it's not about us winning an argument. It's about loving the people around us. It breeds a compassion to those around us that quite honestly, who are just like we were before grace took a hold of our lives. These people are just like we were until we ran headlong into the loving arms of a father. These people are just like we were. They're just like we were until our lives were turned around and radically transformed by a Father who loves us unconditionally. These people are just like we were. And so we come and we bring our response in gentleness and respect. And this is really the hope that that is on trial. This is the reality of our hope. That actually our lives were once just like yours. And I I take upon myself the compassion of a father who loves you. And I demonstrate that love by responding to you in a way that you do not deserve. In and amongst challenge and trial and difficulty that you may bring me, I get to demonstrate a very different way. I get to love you like God loves you. This is our hope. Finally, 
want you to remember that you're in good company. As you read through those verses from 18 and through to 22, it's a little confusing. I read probably about eight different, um, eight, um, different books around what these verses actually meant. But ultimately, this is the key I want us to take away from these final verses. Ultimately, Jesus and Noah lived in the same way that Peter is talking about. They were both, they both lived lives fully engaged in the culture that they lived in. And they both, um, lived distinctive lives as they responded to the people around them. Jesus was persecuted. Noah was laughed at. But in both those situations, both suffered, but both of them ultimately walked in right relationship with God. They both walked in right relationship with God. So remember, you are absolutely in good company. You're in good company. Now, I I want us to take from these verses um, something that would that would genuinely affect the way that we walk out um, of this building today. It would genuinely affect the way we live our lives. I'm very conscious that for many of us, that it, um, it, it feels like our lives remain hidden. It's almost like, you know, if we were to take the A-team analogy, it's almost like we are hemmed in and, 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 and the big bad world out there is, is encroaching in and we have very little resource and it's almost like we are held up in this, in this warehouse. But for many of us, what we've chosen to do in that moment, in moments where we find that, find that, that um, we encounter suffering or we encounter challenge from people around us, that we retreat, we hide away. And it's almost like rather than understanding what we're to do next, we just settle. And that warehouse, we, we take the welder and we start to make some furniture because we're probably just going to live in here. We'll take, we'll take that gaffer tape and I think we can fashion out some artwork because this warehouse is going to be home for the next little while until Jesus comes again. We've, we've, we've negated the fact that actually our call is to get out, is to be engaged, is to be sent out into the world. And it's yes, it, we will find that we will encounter challenge from people. Yes, we'll encounter difficult situations for people as we live fully out loud for Jesus. But that's the place where we are supposed to, and that's where we're called to live out. This isn't the place that we're called to live in. This is the place from which we're sent. And Peter's got, has some just such helpful things for us to do. And I encourage you this week as you go back into your workplaces, you go back into those challenging situations to meditate on this, on these passage, on this passage. Let it speak to your heart. Let the love of God be something that permeates your heart so you begin to respond out of a place of love rather than a place of attack. Let these verses stir you up to engage rather than retreat. Let these verses speak to you and set your, um, set your feet firm on the foundation of who Jesus is in your life so that he can live through your life. Why don't you stand? I want to pray. Father, I thank you for your presence with us. The Holy Spirit, you're here.